I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is author, singer, director, and actor Jeanette McCurdy. Jeanette and I talk about her incredibly powerful and very funny new book, I'm Glad My Mom Died, the highs and lows of doing press, Similarities between our families, keeping secrets, the life of a child actor, professional jealousy, recognizing a healthy relationship, and a lot more. First to call in today is Roz. She met a new guy mid-pandemic, and the relationship looked promising, until it turned out he had lied about his name, age, marital status, and the fact that he has several kids. Our second caller today is Kathleen, whose boyfriend has a seven-year-old from a previous marriage. Kathleen wonders how to navigate her boyfriend's resentment of his ex and keep the peace among the adults for the sake of her new stepdaughter. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. When we last spoke, I remember you telling me about the desire to quit acting. But after listening to your book, I was thinking about your relationship with acting and how it didn't seem to be from a personal drive. You told me you had supported your family. And I, of course, believed you, but I didn't know to what extent. So much of what you wrote about are personal experiences, but amplified a hundred times in terms of all kinds of different things, like a sense of sexual shame, which I don't know how much you have, but your mom seemed to have planted some seeds for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine, like I was watching some of your recent press clips. I'm so embarrassed. No. I cried on Nightline. (laughs) But nothing about your story could be deemed frivolous. You know, this is not without reason. Thanks. Yeah. Man, it's a raw journey. I just admire so much how brave you are to put it there and then to kind of double down. And I'm sorry, I don't know how your press tour has been going, but I'm sorry if you've ever had to be defensive. It's so weird, right, with press, because it's like they're talking about the thing and they've got to do what they've got to do, but you've got to do what you've got to do. How do you navigate it and do you have any tips? No. Because I also think you're doing beautifully. Thanks. I'm sure you've been asked this at least a hundred times about the title of your book. And for our listeners, the title is I'm Glad My Mom Died. And it sets up the tone kind of perfectly, really heartbreaking and really funny. You can probably tell which interviewer has read it based on how salacious they think the title is. What gets me about press is how I walk in and sometimes like the lighting's so serious and the environment's so serious and you can hear a pin drop and there's the chair and it feels so cold. Like everything's so clinical and like daunting and domineering. 
I don't know. Because I also think the book's got a lot of humor in it. Yes. And I feel like there hasn't been really an opportunity to talk about <gasps> a lot of the humor, except for in, you know, lovely podcasts like this one. But otherwise, it's like the setting's so dramatic and you can just feel them. Like when I cry, I'm like, God, I know they're going to punch in on that. I don't know. It just feels a little embarrassing. I love it when you talk about the crying on cue elements. And yeah, you're fucking hysterical. You always have been. You're just darkly hysterical. People who aren't listening, they're like, oh, whatever. But if you're listening to you, yeah, you're brilliant. Thanks, man. That's so nice. It's true. My grandparents, Jeanette, are a lot like yours. Okay. I could relate a lot. And even though my mom was not raised with a ton of religion, there was so much sexual guilt. Really? Yeah. I was supposed to be a virgin until I got married. Like, that felt like truly so sinful to me. My mom was terrified. I don't know that I would be talked about if I slept with somebody. It's so interesting that it's separate from religion. Where do you think it came from for her? My grandpa. Okay, okay. He happened to have three beautiful, broke daughters. They were just like these three gorgeous little blonde girls that are totally traumatized Yeah. to this day. And I love them all very much. All three are living. All three are living. My mom's parents are dead, and I'm glad. (laughs) They were not contributing. Doesn't sound like it. No. So I just want you to know how it has personally touched me. No, I love that. I love hearing the connection points because I think family trauma and abusive environments, sometimes it's easy to think of them as one thing. It's so often the alcoholic father or whatever, and, and he's beating the mom, and that's absolutely awful. But I do think there are a lot of shades to abuse and it can look a lot of different ways. And it's so normalized. Like for me, my brothers were playing Nintendo, Goldeneye, while my mom was chasing my dad around the house with a knife. It just becomes so normal and becomes such a part of everyday routine that when I was little, I didn't realize that it was abuse or trauma. I didn't know what was happening. I just thought the boys are playing 007, mom's chasing dad with a knife, grandma's crying with toilet paper on her head. It's like, just get out of the way. Just hide. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you have a hiding spot? I wish there were hiding spots, but my mom was a hoarder, so there was no way of hiding because she had shit everywhere. What did she hoard? Everything. Everything had sentimental attachment. Like, if masks were around, she would have kept the mask because, oh, her baby touched the mask. I had the hotel key. It would be, oh, well, because that has the memory of the hotel trip. Like, every single thing was kept because of whatever story she made up around the sentimentality surrounding it. But, of course, it was just her OCD, I think, kind of manifesting in that way. If death hadn't always been looming over her from the time that essentially you knew her, because I think Mm -hmm. she was diagnosed when you were two. Yeah. So, like, who would she have been? I wonder that for sure. Like, those things just sort of concentrate something that's already there. Yes, absolutely. What a great point. When my brothers had said, and I'd seen pictures from before I was born, where the house did look more normal. Like, it didn't look bad at all. It looked a little messy, nothing crazy. But I think because of the cancer, she started clinging to life and fearing mortality. And I think the fear is probably what drove the hoarding since, I mean, the pictures showed that it didn't seem to be there before the cancer was there. A story that really resonated with me was when you were in Hawaii trying to essentially hide your relationship because I did that Mm. for like two years. I was living with what would become my first husband in Los Angeles. My parents didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. I had to move out if they were coming to visit. So you met him and didn't tell them that you'd met him, didn't tell him you... They knew that we were dating. Okay, okay. But we moved in together within like three and a half months because I really like to do things quickly. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then you didn't tell them because why? what would have happened? I don't know. Like hindsight feels not always accurate, but I wonder if I kind of knew in my gut that it wasn't right. Like this was too immature. Mm. My parents really did want me to be a virgin until I was married. And when they found out I had written in my diary and my mom, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was awful. For me to feel this much shame and anxiety about sex and my body and not having any roadmap to navigate those things. I think any person can relate to your book, you in Hawaii, and how the whole time, even though you must have been having a lovely time in Hawaii, this thing is back there. Yeah, it's that terrifying feeling of, oh, God, the other shoe's about to drop and when and... Totally. When you talk about feeling jealous of a co-star, it was actually kind of liberating for me in a way. Because, of course, I've experienced that. And early in your career, being treated as though you are your character... Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of even just saying your character name to you constantly. Yeah. Like the amount of times that somebody would actually call me my name. And it got better once I was on sets for years at a time. But absolutely, when I was a kid and on a set for a week here, a week there, it was always just like, Josie, here, go on your mark. Right. You know, even, hey, kid, or like whatever that seems just ridiculous. Like somebody wouldn't say that. But there's a lot of that, I think. How have you been affected by the initial response and the sort of, I don't know, the catchy, succinct summaries. You know, she's quit acting. So I will say the week before it came out, there were a couple nights where I would just be like crying on the bed because at this point there were headlines. Nobody had read the book. So there were some really lovely reviews from people who had read the book. And I was so proud of that, like truly so deeply proud of those. But then for these headlines to come along and I just felt like that's not what this book is about. To me, it's so much more important and more significant. And there's so many more important conversations to have than fucking lame, clickbaity headlines. And to see that that's what was happening was devastating to me. I felt like this is my life. I put more thought and work into this than anything I've ever done. And to feel like it was being reduced to a headline was so disappointing. I was struggling for a couple of days, but then, you know, very fortunately it came out and the narrative kind of started turning and people started connecting with it. And I'm glad people gave it a chance, you know, despite the headlines or whatever, or even because of the headlines, as long as they read the book and really got, I think, what it was about, that's what mattered to me. So then I really have been trying to just embrace that and appreciate that. And then also I have kind of another layer on that of like, okay, so when I was really devastated about the headlines, that's reporting too much to external feedback. And I was self-conscious about that. So then I booked a therapy session with my therapist to try to focus on, okay, I'm letting like the external get to me too much. So it's been, there's been a lot to explore. I think you're a brilliant writer. Thank you. Oh my God. That's so nice. Was there a part of the process that felt the most cathartic, if you felt that at all? I felt like I did a lot of the cathartic kind of working through of it in therapy before writing it. And then I felt like once I started writing it, I had done enough of that processing. And of course, it was still cathartic, you know, naturally. But I hope I was able to view it a bit more objectively and a bit more like, okay, what's worth sharing with people? What's just for me? What needs to stay out of this? What's entertaining? What's not? Because I think if it had been too cathartic, it could have risked being not the best way of telling the story, I guess, like could have just been too indulgent or too long winded here to whatever. And I really wanted to keep it like moving and keep the pace good and keep it entertaining. It is. It is incredibly Thanks. entertaining. I'm so glad. 
If you could write your own clickbait ideas, what would they be? (laughs) (laughs) Clickbait ideas. Oh, boy. Can I do what I wish? That's the point. Okay. I think the most important conversations to have around it are narcissistic parental abuse, eating disorders, I think complicated grief, family dysfunction, and I think independence. Those are like sort of the pillars as I see them. And then also I happen to be on Nickelodeon and a lot of people talk about that. (laughs) When were you able to tell somebody that your mom was bathing you? It was in therapy. And I was constantly trying to disclaim my mom's behavior. Everything that I was saying was, well, she did this because or she's the best person. She only wanted me to be blank. So that's why she like it was constantly overprotecting and defending her. This was with my first therapist. And then she said, you know, what you're talking about is abuse. Couldn't hear that. Left my first therapist and then eventually started up therapy again, specifically to work on an eating disorder before getting into all the other muck. And once I was able to get into the other muck was when I had brought up that my mom showering me and I sobbed the first time I brought it up. Like I felt my whole face go frozen and it was so stiff. And then I said it and then it just like started sobbing. And I don't think I even realized how much I'd been holding in about my emotional experience surrounding that until I'm buckled over myself sobbing and it's all coming out. And then it's like, whoa, okay. I was suppressing a lot for a long time. And also, maybe not a fun fact, but a fact of the book writing was that that was the last chapter that I was able to write because I just felt like it was a tougher one to know how to approach. And I didn't want it to be too heavy and I wanted to frame it appropriately and I wanted it to not be too long. And that was the last thing that came out and it came out sort of toward one of the very later drafts. I'm really glad that you wrote it, though. Thank you. I'm sure you do know this, but I bet throughout your lifetime you'll hear it, how helpful it is. A lot of people have been saying that. It makes me very happy. Good. A lot of people are saying, hey, my mom's alive. I can't say some of these things. Yeah, I know. You're saying yeah. I'm like, I understand. Are there questions that you wish you would be asked that people have not been asking you? I know what it's like to do a press tour. It's hard. Yeah, draining. And sometimes it feels patronizing, especially, I think, if you're a woman. I will say I used to really hate press. I mean, I felt like so phony and inauthentic. So I feel like I'm sitting there just like a fake smile plastered on my face saying the sound bites that have made it through network notes and producer notes. like everybody's approved the sound bites that you're spewing. And I just was like, this is so fucking phony. So it's been really nice to be able to talk about something that I feel proud of and that I feel like there's a lot to talk about. And I do think a lot of a lot of the journalists that I've spoken with have been really thoughtful and asked honestly a lot like deeper and more insightful questions than I expected. I have been pleasantly surprised with the arc of, I guess, how the press has gone and ultimately just relieved to be talking about something that I don't dislike. How did you have the courage to turn down the $300,000? I should preface this question for our listeners. Or would you mind doing it? I will say I cover this thing in the book where I talk about something to do with Nickelodeon. There's something to do with $300,000. But I also approach it from my personal point of view of it and that I was like 21 and just coming from a place of self-righteousness and then kind of immediately after the decision going like, oh, fuck, that's a lot of money. You know, geez, could have put my nieces through college. You know, now I think those sorts of things. I hope you're proud. Thank you. Yeah, I do think this is the moment I was laughing about earlier, but they had asked something about this. And I said, like, I am proud. I chose a path of integrity or something. And I started crying with pride for myself. So I'm going to avoid doing that again right now. (laughs) I don't believe in the idea of closure. I want to, but I just don't know if it's always achievable. Mm -hmm. But I do hope 
but being able to have the framework of your memory now and people understanding that was a lot for that kid or however they're digesting it, but even them aside. And I guess the reason why I think about it like this is because my mom has never been able to reconcile her relationship with her parents. Mm. I'm with you that I think closure is a hard thing to come by if it is even possible to come by. But I think that's something that the book helped me with. I think there was some sort of attempt to find closure to find shape. And I do think now I'm able to have this experience of my mom where I can just miss her, you know. Oh, that's nice. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Your 30s are going to be awesome. You have nothing to worry about. You think? You're like 30 (laughs) going on 80. Good for you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it's a relief to have such a simple reaction of, you know, whatever the grief is now. It's been almost 10 years since she died. But to just have like, oh, I miss her and it can just be that instead of I miss her. I want to throw something. I'm angry. I'm confused. I'm hurt. I'm crying. I'm mad that I'm crying. I don't want to miss her. I do miss her. It was so fucking complicated for so long. And now it does feel easier. Good. Good. That makes me happy. Jeanette, do you feel comfortable about talking about relationship stuff? Yeah, sure. Like, are you in one? I am. Yes, I am in one. He went downstairs so that he wouldn't be in the background of this just sort of popping up. But we've been together for a while and he's been really supportive and it's healthy. And it's so interesting to me because I feel like I didn't know what a healthy relationship looked like with my pattern of unhealthy relationships. Like I couldn't visualize it. I thought that a certain amount of enmeshment was normal or that a certain behavioral kind of pattern or like the loop of the relationship where it's like the tension and then the kind of cycling fight. Like I thought these things were normal and maybe they are for just like products of dysfunction. It's a matter of working through it. I don't know. But to be able to be in something where it's really, you know, good communication and validation of the other's emotions and not having to take on the other's emotions, but being able to provide support, it's just changed my world, like, you know, very sincerely. I didn't know that this sort of thing was possible. So it's very cool. That is awesome. I'm really happy that you feel the love and support that we all need, you know? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who relate to kind of what I go into in the book about just patterns of dysfunctional relationships. I mean, I felt like I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know when to get out or that it wasn't normal. It's just so confusing if you don't have a roadmap or the example from your parents of, you know, what a healthy relationship is like. You just think the yelling and the chaos is part of it. You wrote something in your book about a feeling that is, you put it so beautifully. I always put it clumsily as like, I don't feel like I understand like a female language. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think we spoke about this I a think bit. we did too. Oh my God. It was one of my favorite parts of the conversation. I feel like it's a hard thing to even say because you're met with the, what are you talking about? Like, I know. Because they know it. Because they just get the thing. Is it because we didn't have sisters <laughs> and we suppressed our emotions? I think that can't help <laughs> learning the female language at all. If you were like me, did you always have a hard time admitting any kind of vulnerability to your friends? Oh my God. Yeah. The worst. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was always fine in my world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fine. Just fine. Mm -hmm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, Roz. Hi. Thank you for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah. So I met this guy almost a year now. During COVID times. Yeah. Met him, made it very clear from myself that I was not interested in like a relationship. It was just kind of like, as you said, COVID times, wanted to get physical. (laughs) So initially, the compatibility was very, very good. And then he started to call me a lot just to talk, which is not a common thing that I have experienced in the dating world these days. And he started kind of furthering into like, let's be actual friends because I like you as a person and I want you to know about me kind of a thing. I was flattered by that because he's a very closed off person and he seemed to want to let me in. So I thought that was cool. And I wanted to wait it out a little bit because after about a month, maybe a month and a half, he revealed that he had lied about his name and age and told me the correct name and age that he was. Yeah. Could you give our listeners some of the specifics for the sake of comparison? I'm going to change the names just because of his privacy, if that's okay. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I met a man who said his name was James and he was 32 years old. I'm 28. Later, he revealed his name was actually Ben and he's 40 years old, which seemed like a weird thing to hold back to me. But then a couple months later, he revealed that he was divorced and had kids who his oldest kid is like six years younger than me which was a little weird and kind of intense. But at that point, I was still very much holding back as far as relationship stuff, but had learned enough about him to know that he was new to this state because of the whole divorce situation. And I was kind of the only friend he had made. And I, as much of the attachment issues that I harbor go, I have a hard time not being there for somebody who needs a friend. Mm -hmm. So I stuck around and we got pretty close. And a few months back, he had a family issue that he had to go back to the state they live in to deal with. We expressed love for each other, but I still refused to acknowledge him as any kind of actual like romantic partner, just because I was like, in all the time that I have known him, like his name is not saved in my phone. It's literally the red flag. Okay. So I'm, I'm impressed by that part, but I think you may have let him off the hook with the lying. Yeah. So he had to go back and you guys are dancing around the idea of maybe 
solidifying this as a relationship. Yeah. And he was only supposed to be gone for a month. I have been in a relationship where the partner had to leave the state for X amount of time and they never came back. So I had all these like reservations where I was like, I feel like I'm never going to see you again. And he was like, well, if that happens, I'm going to ask you to move here with me. And if you don't want to do that, just have a bag ready so I can fly you out to come visit me. I was like, wow, okay. So you actually do care. So we were talking on and off every couple of days for the first while that he was gone, which was weird because I actually had to talk to him about calling me too much a while back. He was calling me like five or six times a day. So anyway, he was supposed to be gone for one month. He's been gone for almost three. And it's been three. No, no, no. That's kind of what I've gotten to because it's been three weeks since I've heard from him at all. Oh. And I just stopped trying to call or text about 10 days ago. And what are you feeling now? Mostly I'm worried. Why? Because I know he had avoided going to see his family for like 13 years before this because they're very aggressive and violent people. And he made a lot of moves to get out of that and get away from that, which is also where a lot of his trust issues come from. So I'm balancing between understanding this person. And also I can't trust someone who doesn't trust anyone else. I think that with anyone else, it would be completely natural to worry about them. But I don't know if I even believe the story he's told you about his family or whatever trauma of his that led to his not trusting people. He lied to you in the beginning, and I think he's still lying to you. I think there is something about the heightened drama that keeps you hooked maybe it feels like love because the passion and heartache are real. I just really think that he's playing a game that he's really good at. You know, he even managed to get past your high defense. Yeah. This is how he infiltrates. He lies and then expresses this vulnerability when he comes clean. And that's a big question mark too with how honest he's being. You hear about this family stuff and it's natural for you to be concerned about him because you're a good person. But I don't think you will ever understand him. You're trying to make sense of a bunch of lies and get some small degree of control in an uncontrollable situation. Yeah. When you said the thing about control, I almost like pointed at the screen, like the trying to control the uncontrollable. I just relate to that piece so much. And Roz, I don't know if you're feeling that at all, but like my claws go out of like, ah, what can I control when I feel things slipping away or I feel like that urgency and just the attempt to control and it's the really tough situation to be in. How are you feeling today? You said worried mostly? Yeah, through all of the scenarios that I've run in my head and this is awful, but kind of best case scenario is he either lost my number and is a dumbass and never wrote it down or something bad happened. And that feels so shitty to say. Well, I mean, he'd already established a pattern since he left of distance, you know? Yeah. There was already the, like, slow breakaway. Can you talk at all about what the family drama was that brought him where he had to return? A member of his family got really sick. A member who he was not close to, but who had him as the, like, power of attorney person. And so his sister had been helping out as much as she could. But it got to a point where she no longer had any authority to make decisions on medical aid. So he had to go out there for that. Roz, did he ever give an explanation or did you ask about the initial lie about the why did you 
Yeah. What did he say? He was interested in younger women because younger women are generally not interested in real relationships, but he thought his age would scare them away. And I guess professionally and casually, he goes by his dad's name because he's embarrassed by his name. Did you ever really trust him? I did for a little while. I don't anymore. Yes. Yeah. Me too. On paper, awful. Yeah. In person, extremely sweet and charming and compassionate. (sighs) Yeah. I don't know. But I also tend to get involved with people who I don't want long-term things with, where I can see an out, Mm. whether it's personality or behavior or something, because that's my problem. So I got myself into this as much as he brought me into this. It took me till my 40s to let myself be loved really well. Mm. But Roz, my hope for you is that you guys never have contact again. I think that initial lie. I should have (laughs) run. Listen, we're all lonely, you know, and I don't see a world where even if things add up, sort of, even if he calls you in four days and is like, can't believe it, I lost your number, I'm coming home, the person died, we signed the will, whatever, I got a shit ton of money from the estate, so that's awesome. I can't wait to see you, babe. I... (laughs) He makes me really uneasy. I don't care for that. Was there a distance from when he told you his real age and name and then the kids? Did the kids come later or was it all at once? Kids came later. Okay. That was a reveal. Yeah. That was unprompted. He was just like, did I ever tell you? I'm like, did I ever tell you? Oh, (laughs) Oh, Roz. (laughs) This guy feels like he's a scam artist, Roz. Jeanette, do you know anything about like the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? One of them can't have empathy, right? I don't know which one it is. Yeah. You seem I to actually know. do know this. <laughs> Good. Tell us. Psychopaths tend to believe that they are different than human beings, that nobody has feelings, so it doesn't matter what you do. There's no consequence. Sociopaths are generally brilliant They actually tend to be CEOs in many cases and like high power lawyers, but they don't have violent streaks. But yeah, sociopaths and psychopaths don't have the same understanding of empathy or emotion or any understanding of empathy. Mm. I only see this person as very untrustworthy. He's not thinking about you as much as you're thinking about him. And I don't like that. And you don't even know what is beyond that story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, did I forget to tell you I served time? Oh, did I forget to tell you? Like, oh, yeah, did I make that? (laughs) Okay, dude. Yeah. Does the idea of never seeing him again feel awful? No, it doesn't feel awful. In fact, it feels accurate. But may I ask a question of you lovely ladies? Anything. How do you find closure within yourself? in a situation like this. Oh, Roz, like we were talking about how I don't believe in closure. Jeanette, will you speak to this? I completely agree. I think for me, there's so many aspects of my life that have just lacked any semblance of closure, that trying to find the closure was making me spin my wheels and feel like I was going crazy, just like trying to find answers where there weren't any and trying to make sense of people's decisions where there wasn't any sense to be made. 
eventually for me, it was kind of about just letting go. And that's so much easier said than done. I'm a control freak, so I'm not great at letting go. Also, I don't know if you enjoy writing at all, but writing is a helpful tool for me to help kind of like make sense of things and find shape where there's just like a complete lack of shape. I've been writing a lot of music about it. Write a lot of music. I would distract yourself as much as you can. If you find yourself on the hamster wheel of thinking about what is going on with him, I want you to recognize that you could spend all day and all night thinking about that. And even if those things are the case, there's nothing really you can do. It's not worth the time. I don't think you know all the truths in his life. And, you know, he's got some other shit going on. Yeah. Just recognize that it's out of your hands. And I love you. And I think it's really strong of you that you haven't contacted him for 10 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roz, thank you so much. Thank you both so much for talking to me. I am rooting for you. Me too. And I'm really grateful that you were so open with us. Love you guys. Thank you for talking to me. Bye, Roz. Oh my God. I hate that feeling. Yeah. I was really there with her. I have had those kinds of high walls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have questions for you about relationships. I love it. Is that something you talk about? As much as I can. You're in one now? Yeah, I'm married again. This is my third marriage and my final one. I was 27. I met him doing a low-budget horror movie that I was a local hire on up in Seattle right before I was about to graduate from University of Washington. This was something that I thought was interesting in our journeys, respectively, was that My mom could have had the capacity to be a hardcore stage mom. Mm -hmm. I do remember some curlers. Okay. Just like you write about. (laughs) But I never would read any of my lines or do any acting in front of my parents. So the love of acting, it felt like came from me solely. How old were you when you started? Nine. Oh, you were a baby. I was, but it was so different. I was a stage actor in Seattle. Okay, okay. Like, I was like a kid theater actor, so I was around all kinds of interesting, adult, broke, miserable theater actors in Seattle. So the stakes were not yours, you know? And the dialogue wasn't the kind of digestible dialogue, you know, like... When eventually I started going out for commercial auditions, it was horrible. Because why? Well, it was like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to say this thing about the yogurt, and everyone here is (laughs) way cuter than I am. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to get this. And it was just an annoyance. Mm. Mm -hmm. My heart was in sort of the theater idea. But I wanted to make money, so I wanted to go into advertising, essentially. Into advertising? Yeah, I was really interested in that world. How old were you when you wanted to go into advertising? When I was in college. Oh, I see, I see. Because I wanted to write. I didn't think I would make it as an actor. Wow. I wouldn't have fallen in love with it at all if my lines were like the backup cheerleader to the lead. (laughs) I would have been like, this makes me feel like shit. (laughs) (laughs) I... Stepped away from acting when I was 24. I'm 30 now. But at that time, it was really like a hard line for me. It was very black and white. It was very, I'm not going anywhere near this. Probably a little bit of like a punk rock, like rebellion, like, ah, fuck you acting. I'm not going to. But I think that was important. Do you know what I'm saying? It says something about your character that you turned down the $300,000 and you like definitively and publicly drew your line in the sand. Like this shit is not making me happy. 
I think a part of my personality can at times be bold. And I think that I was like, okay, I'm not going to half-ass this walking away from acting. I'm not going to like kind of be auditioning, but like not really. Like there's no flirting with acting. That's not how the career goes in my experience of it. It's like you're either completely committed and you'll sell your soul for the next role or not, unless you're, you know, a certain level of success that I certainly hadn't achieved where you are able to just turn down things and get more things, like whatever, and that's its own experience. I wonder if there's a role that you would find satisfying, something that could give you the opportunity to explore and maybe nurture you at the same time. I appreciate that. I really thought that I was done with acting. I'm never doing that shit ever again. Goodbye. And then after finishing the book, I didn't finish that long ago, probably a couple months ago, I remember having the thought, I was like sitting on my couch, looking out the window and having the thought, huh, I wonder if there's a way to act where maybe I write a role for myself. I don't even know what it could mean, but maybe there's a way of kind of reclaiming it. I used to just feel like a puppet all the time and everybody's touching you and finessing you. And, you know, with the people on the set that we worked on, there's not really a lot of wiggle room for creativity. There's not a lot of like open to interpretation-ness. It's very much like, this is how you're going to say it. This is how you're going to look while you're saying it. This is what you're going to do when you're, it's like, Every single thing is dictated. This whole idea was a bit of a first for me when I signed on to mom. Mm. Not that I had had a ton of creative leeway, but that kind of rigidity and the surgical element to multicam and the rolling of eyes. If there was a creative suggestion from talent. Here goes talent again, thinking (laughs) they have a fucking brain. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, totally. The little vice grip that's around your heart sometimes just gets squeezed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I can't imagine your experience as a very young person, all your formative years being in that format specifically, with being the funny best friend. I have a question. Did you tape in front of a live audience? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, we would do Thursdays. We would tape half of our show without a live audience. Yes. Okay. Okay. What gets me, which I didn't realize, we didn't tape in front of a live audience because I don't think kids could have endured the excessive amount of takes that we did for every single thing. But what gets me is they have like the pizzas delivered to the audience and then they have like a hype person and they got like crazy like club music like in between the takes. The whole thing is so, I don't even know what it is, but it's not reality at all in any way. I find the environment surrounding the making of sitcoms significantly more funny than whatever the sitcoms are that they sort of churn out. This is our show, Jeanette. This is how we're going to (laughs) heal. It's just a multi-cam with us crying and lights in the background. Yeah. I think we could have an age difference of like 15 years, right? Could I be like your older sister from another? (laughs) (laughs) I cannot believe you're 45. I'm blown away. Wow. Well, my husband's a DP, (laughs) but I am turning really red. I'm just enjoying this so much. Okay, so we've got our show. Great. Done. (laughs) How did you and your husband meet? We met Making Overboard, which is a movie that I did in 2017. Jeanette, when I was getting to know your story, you know, I wouldn't call my journey remarkable or irregular, certainly not like yours, but I was a deep romantic. I was really short. I was like a total late bloomer. I had (laughs) no breasts. I had headgear and a perm for a while. So charming. Oh, my God. And my best friend, because I was the kind of girl that just had, like, one best friend that I was in love with. And she was gorgeous and had been from kindergarten. We didn't go to the same schools, but we were neighbors. 
the identity of sidekick resonated with me. Interesting. I don't know how that concept sort of fits into your experience. Wow, that's such an interesting nuance. Like this could be a three-hour conversation on its own. Yes, absolutely. Just feeling like, you know, and I talk a lot about jealousy during the Sam and Cat experience, but absolutely just feeling like comparing myself, everything that was or was not, which is more often the case happening for me, comparing that to what was happening for the other person and just feeling like, did this person take these opportunities away from me? Would these have been opportunities for me had this person not been here? It brought up so much insecurity for me, so much self-doubt. I mean, even as an adult, like if you are number two on the call sheet, it means you are parking right next to number one, who has the closest parking space, and you don't get your top pick of wardrobe because what if number one wants to wear the magenta thing? Or number one can dictate what number two (laughs) wears, can sometimes pick that. That's always fun. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And those years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I do think the entertainment industry has a way of just kind of, there is such inherent hierarchy to every aspect of the business. There is such an underline to every number one, number two, number three, number four. Like you are blatantly aware of whatever your number is. It's probably on your door. It's like number five, Jeanette McCurdy, or like whatever the thing is, where it's just, if there was any escaping being defined by a number, there won't be by the time you walk to your dressing room because you're going to confront it right there in front of your face. And I think it's natural to have those insecurities. I mean, honestly, whether you're in the entertainment industry or not, especially now with hot take social media leading to comparison, (laughs) but I think it's everywhere. And I also think it's exciting that there's so much conversation happening around this stuff now because it wasn't before. And it was just talked about in a very glib, oh, we all compare ourselves away with like no real conversation happening. But now I feel like it's at a place where people are talking about it in more nuanced ways and more thoughtful ways. And hopefully people are doing the inner work. Like it's been a long time struggle for me and something that I'm always actively revisiting with my therapist and finding new tools and new techniques and new approaches and all of that. And I suspect there are some of those journeys that will just always kind of be ongoing. But I feel in a much better place with jealousy now. I feel like I've made decisions that have put my life on a path that's like, I don't compare my life to anybody. I couldn't think of who to compare it to because I feel really kind of locked into, I guess, what I want and also to making the kinds of things that I want. But I'm very open to the idea that jealousy may just like completely crash into me at some point in the future and surprise me. But right now, I feel like I wouldn't trade my life and I'm grateful to be on a path that's my own. I remember this so much from the last time we spoke. And I hope that it's a reassurance to you that if it hasn't always been part of you, it's been a part of you for a long time now, your sense of journey and your reflection, your courage You are just somebody I really admire. Oh, my God. Thank you. (laughs) You mentioned crying earlier in interviews. And in your book, you talk about it in a different context. It's so funny to me, my relationship with crying, because as a kid, it was so much crying for the sake of characters. And I didn't cry as a child. Like, it was very suppressed. And the performance happened for the cameras. And then the performance that was happening for my mom was, I'm happy and I have no issues and I'm fine. And I'm always fine. Even when I felt like crying fucking inside, which is honestly why I think I was good at crying on cue because I was suppressing all of that. So then I could go into the room and let all the fucking feelings out that I was feeling behind closed doors in my own home. And then with time since walking away from acting, I've really worked on my relationship with emotions because I had so much shame around emotion, particularly around crying because my grandma cried at the drop of a hat over anything. And I felt like 
There was no sort of merit to her tears. I felt like she was just constantly wailing, then also miraculously dry-eyed. So she'd be wailing about, oh, Louise doesn't love me. And I'd be like, I don't see any tears on those cheeks, Grandma. How do you trust that person? Exactly. Exactly. It was so hard to trust anything in her. So well said. And then my mom was a bit different, but really seemed to have no control over her emotions. She didn't seem to be manipulating them the way that my grandma was, but she seemed really out of control of them. So that's what I fear. I don't want to not have control over my emotions. So at this point, I walk away from acting and I'm working on a type of therapy called DBT, where it's really unpacking your own relationship with your emotions. And there's a thing called an emotion myth worksheet. That's like one of the first worksheets that you fill out. It's a very worksheet-based therapy you're supposed to answer true, false or on a scale of one to five or something like that. And it's like, I hate my emotions or I think my emotions are who I am. I think any emotion is valid. And whatever, I turned in this sheet and they're like, we have a lot of work to do on emotions because you have so much judgment around them. My therapist had said, I suspect that you are invalidating yourself on a daily basis in so many ways because of this judgment around your relationship with your emotions that was complicated, not only by acting, but also by the relationship you saw the women around you have with their emotions. That was a lot to unpack. Very much <laughs> speaks to me, though. Oh, my God. It's layered, but it's complicated and it's relevant. Oh, completely. So now I'm at this place where I try to allow my emotions. I try to accept them and validate them when I come up, which is one thing in day-to-day life. But it's another thing. I was scared I was going to cry on Good Morning America. I did a Good Morning America the day that the book came out. And I had a Zoom therapy session the night beforehand in my hotel room where I was like, I'm terrified that I'm going to be sitting across from George Stephanopoulos. I'm going to start crying. I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry on national television. The first thing in the morning, it's like, good morning, here's my tears. It just seems awful. And my therapist had encouraged me to just accept whatever the emotion is and allow it and to kind of implement all the work that I've done on my own separate from the cameras, away from the cameras, and just allow that same experience for the cameras, which brought me a lot of relief because I had psyched myself out so much and had so much fear around if I was going to cry across from George Stephanopoulos or not. And then I wound up not crying. I was very relieved about it. But I had gotten to a place where I was like, okay, it's okay, whatever happens, it's going to be okay. I can allow my emotional experience. I don't have to control it like I did when I was a child. I can just allow it. I can just accept it. And yeah, that was my TED Talk there. (laughs) (laughs) Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hi, how are you, Kathleen? Hello. Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? Oh, great. Thank you so much for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on, Kathleen? Absolutely, yeah. So I've been dating this really great guy for about a little over a year and a half now. He has a wonderful daughter as well. He was married. It was a long drawn out divorce, but he is officially divorced after a few years. And everything's going really well. I absolutely adore his daughter. She's incredible. She's seven, so she's at a great age too. She's super fun. If you had asked me two years ago about dating a guy that has a daughter and the next wife, I probably would have been like, ah, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, I met my boyfriend and things changed. And we're very happy, but there's a lot of drama that can come from dating somebody with a kid and an ex-wife. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the extra difficult part is their marriage ended with a lot of infidelity on her side and a lot of hurt feelings. And while my boyfriend is not even remotely the perfect human, and I'm sure he contributed to the demise of their marriage in some way, there's this double standard of she moved in their daughter with the guy that she had been cheating on him with and didn't even tell him and all this kind of stuff. I'm over here just trying to have a happy life where I'm navigating having a wonderful boyfriend and his daughter. They're moving in actually next weekend and that's going great. And ever since we've gotten closer to moving in, she's kind of ramped up her antics in terms of like jealousy. So for example, I buy a lot of my boyfriend's daughter's clothes these days because he doesn't find any joy in it. And I do. And so I bought her a dress with animals on it. She loves animals. Well, the next time we picked up his daughter, she had a new animal dress and she makes a point of pointing these things out to us. Like it's something, you know, amazing. Or incredible. I totally know this weird <laughs> yes. language. Yes. It's subtle. It's not like it's direct meanness or anything like that going on. And I really just want some advice on there are a lot of hurt and baggage that I don't carry my boyfriend does. And so how I can help him and ultimately his daughter, you know, have a healthy future going forward. These are my early thoughts. And then I have a couple of questions. Sure. You're in a time of transition right now and everyone gets all weird right around those times. Like they're losing control of something. Sure. So I do think some of that weirdness about clothes or lunches or whatever it is, will smooth out in like six months. Okay. It'll always be slightly wonky. Sure. And illogical. And you're going to be put in a constant position of emotional generosity. Yes. To keep the peace. But it sounds like that might not be too hard for you, which I think is admirable. Thank you. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Check, check, check. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. But I guess the heart of the matter is... If your boyfriend is still bitter and his anger. Yeah. And that's the tough part. He is in therapy. He's pro-therapy and he's trying to work through it. So that's a good thing. Honestly, I think 
as silly as this sounds, if she wasn't with the guy that was a part of their marriage ending, if she was with anybody else off the street, I think he would feel a lot differently about the situation because that's really the point of contention. Just yesterday, we all had to be in the same room together for a brownie ceremony for Girl Scouts. And it was the first time he ever had to be around him. And he did it and it went really well. But it's things like that that I don't know how to promote. I'm like, we got to be there. We got to do this. And he is the best father and we'll be there for everything. But I don't know how to support him through it. So earlier we were talking about the idea of how people will channel their sort of general emotion into like one thing. Yes. It really, in the grand scheme of things, shouldn't matter. We all know this. Jeanette? No, please, please talk. I'm so out of my depth here. I've never been married. I don't have a kid. I have overlap with the jealousy, but so for more on her side. Sure. <laughs> if she was calling and I'd be like, bitch, I know. <laughs> How does this sort of manifest itself? Does he talk about it frequently? Does he gripe about her? Like, how does that work? So a couple things. One with her, it's more of everything starts with, oh, you know, she reached out to me today about X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's a school thing. So that's totally fine. Like, of course she did. I'm glad she did. That's great. And then when it comes to him, his ex-wife's boyfriend, it's really only when his daughter, because she lives with him and she's seven and she thinks this guy is great. She has no reason not to. And my boyfriend would never say a disparaging word about anybody. And so she'll come home and say, oh, me and -and so-and-so baked a cake together this weekend. And I'll sit there and say, tell me more about that. Like, what kind of cake did you bake? Whereas my boyfriend will shut down and he doesn't say anything, but he won't respond. And that's tough because I know his daughter notices and I know she picks up on it. And so I don't want to force him into changing his feelings because I can't do anything about that. But at the same time, that's really how it manifests is this negative energy around when he's brought up and she's going to keep talking about him. I mean, it's not going anywhere right now. Is your boyfriend the kind of person where you could say something like, honey, I talked to these two actresses today. (laughs) Uh, But hear me out. Hear me out. (laughs) Like, I don't know how receptive he would be to the idea of you saying, like, I want us to be like the happiest, most supportive household we could possibly be. Yeah. And, you know, she's so smart. Of course, she feels like you don't like him and she doesn't even know why. Which yeah. makes her intrigued, which probably makes her compliment him even more yeah. to see what kind of reaction. Totally. Yeah. I wonder if you can kind of spell it out through that framework. I do think it's a little unfair to you as well. I mean, I understand it is like a journey, you know. Sure. Time is the only sort of balm here. Yeah. But... If you can phrase it in a way of like, I just want to make sure that we have the most awesome household. Yeah. And honey, she's seven. Yeah. She's picking up on all of this, baby. You know, I know it's really hard, but I just want you to have the long game in mind. Do you think he could hear something like that? I think so. And I think yesterday was a good example for him to see in person. I don't think he wants to believe she picks up on it because I think that's hard. But yesterday at the Girl Scout event, she had the option of picking from, in her case, four people to do this special part of the program with her. And she picked me. 
And when she picked me, yeah, I felt a little uncomfortable because I was like, I just wanted to be here. I wasn't trying to do anything. And I was talking to my aunt about it, who is a psychiatrist by trade. And she was like, well, she picked you because her mom and dad, she can't pick between the two of them because here they are finally in the same room. That's hard to do. So she was like, that's too much. I can't pick my mom's boyfriend because I don't quite know why, but I know dad's not a fan. So that would be awkward. The only person out of this four that everyone's at least pretended to, I would say, if not approved of is me. So she was like, easy choice. I'm going with her to be my special partner because I had four choices. And I told my boyfriend that last night that my aunt said that. And he was like, well, I don't think it's that. You know, I don't think she thought it through that much. And I was like, no, she sat there and had an in-depth conversation with herself. But I do think I was the easy choice. And so when it comes to the long game and what you're talking about, I think seeing that, seeing that she picks up on things like that and that she didn't pick him, again, it's one example, but I think it was fairly telling, can show him that his lack of response to her talking about him has proved what you're saying and that that's that negativity that we don't want. Totally. But Kathleen, here is the tricky part. Your challenge is going to be the finessing of this yeah. because he is so raw. You may have to do a little... Customer service, kindergarten teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. That might be the only way he can hear it for now in baby steps. Yeah. So as you craft this conversation in your head, sure. I would hesitate using specific examples. Okay. Because I think he'll like remember that thing and then he'll go right there. I think it's like, let's futurize. What's our game strategy? Mm. Yeah. And one of them could be like, if the daughter brings up an experience like that again, I think your boyfriend should start to use his name. Yeah. Agreed. Instead of saying your mom, like your mom wants you to do this or you need to call mom or mom wants to whatever. I think an important part of dialogue is saying mom. Like, so mom wants you to call her. Yeah. As opposed to your mom. I think kids absorb that sort of distancing language. Yeah. There's small things. Yeah. I think that even if you just keep a pep talk super short, it doesn't even have to be like, because it's about her happiness or it's about, because he right now is already feeling vulnerable as a father. Sure. He wasn't picked. Yeah. At a crucial time. So. (laughs) No, that's helpful. And it's helpful. The reminder that you gave that this is a transitional period even from the beginning, you know, that plays into all of this as well for not just my boyfriend's ex-wife but also for him and for his daughter and all that stuff as well. 100%. Because, yes, I've lived through a couple of these rocky moments. They usually last between three to four months. Okay. And then things tend to just calm down. Sure. So that is the good news. I'm really glad you're happy. I'm really glad you love this relationship. Yeah. I think you are an awesome addition to their lives. And I'm Sorry that he's a little caught up in the past right now. And I really hope he can start looking productively towards the future. Yeah, I know he doesn't want to be and he wants to move past it. I think it's just still there. I think it's still raw. Totally. Everyone's nervous about the combining of households right now. Like tensions are a little high. Yeah. So maybe this is something that you gently nudge in three weeks. Maybe there's nothing to be done right now. Okay. And maybe you can also kind of lead by example. You know, when things are a little less heightened, you can ask the daughter like, oh, that's cool. Did you make that with Jason or whomever? And she'll probably feel relieved. Yeah. That you're asking about him. 
But I'm really happy that you're happy and that you found like a great family. Thank you. I love that you guys are going to be like together in the same household at Thanksgiving and Christmas or whatever. And like looking forward to all that. Absolutely. And things inevitably will smooth out. His pride's hurt. Yeah. I think you have been a very loving and generous person. Thank you. And I think that is remarkable. And I wouldn't tell you to keep it up if I didn't think you could handle it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time. I've been with you since the beginning. Really? Oh, thanks. Really? Yeah. And Jeanette, I ordered your book on Amazon. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. Yeah. I just want to jump in briefly about the examples that you gave about your interactions with the little girl. Made my heart so happy. I feel like you have such good kid skills and just hearing you like validate her and ask her more about the cake or whatever. It's like really heartwarming. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Kathleen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Jeanette, I just love you so much. I love you too. They're so nice. Your colors are so great. Yeah. I'm just always honored, you know, mm-hmm. for one last thought. When you think of the idea of home, what does that mean to you? I'm so glad you asked this because I was talking with my therapist about this a couple months back when I was like talking about turning 30 and I was scared of turning 30 and I'm like, oh God, and just was having kind of some anxious feelings about that. And then somehow was talking about belonging and wanting a sense of belonging and a sense of community and feeling like I never quite feel like I fit in with certain groups. Like I thought I'd have found my group by now, but I never really felt like I fit in with actors. I hung out with a lot of comedians, never quite felt like I fit in there. So there's this question mark around belonging and the session became about belonging to self. And I heard it and I was like, this is one of those therapy things where it's this vague, like, okay, belonging to self. How do I know what that is? How do I get to that? But I've done a lot of journaling on it. And I guess this is the corniest answer I could possibly say. But I do feel like I'm home. I feel like I am with myself and I'm I'm my own friend. That's the raddest answer. <laughs> it's so corny. I'm just so embarrassed. But I do feel like I'm with myself. Like I'm so grateful for anybody who's also with me, anybody who connects with me. But at the end of the day, I'm here for myself and I was not always. And it took a long time. So I'm happy about it. Do you know what my answer is? Tell me. The Amalfi Coast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better answer. <laughs> I haven't been to the Amalfi Coast, I don't think. But if I had been, that would probably be my home rather than myself. (laughs) Jeanette, I truly cannot thank you enough. I just couldn't love you more. Love you. 